welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. Collegiate athletics has never seen so much change coming at us so fast. Athletic departments continue to deal with the fallout of the pandemic, the safety, mental health, and well-being of their student-athletes, conference realignment, the advances in data around human performance, maintaining fiscal resiliency, and now, of course, names, images, and likenesses, and the recent labor opinion from the general counsel of the NLRB. There's a lot going on here. Today, I want to talk about how these changes are affecting how university leaders, including athletic department leaders, are evaluating their current policies and procedures surrounding risk management and compliance. Simply, how do you keep the university out of trouble when the goalposts keep shifting? My guests today are two consultants from Baker Tilly, a top 10 advisory and consulting firm that supports higher education. Dave Capitano has more than 30 years of experience working with college and university leadership and boards, is a CPA, and he hosts the podcast Higher Ed Advisor. He leads the firm's higher education practice and co-leads the college sports division. Adrian Larmet is a senior manager in the risk advisory practice, focusing on internal audit and enterprise risk management. If ever an enterprise was under great stress and risk, it is college athletics today. Adrian, Dave, welcome to the podcast. So glad to have you here. We're thrilled to be here. Thank you for having us. Yes, Karen, it's an honor. Thank you so much. So you both work in risk management, and I want to ask you each to comment from your vantage point on the very unusual and, and you know, dynamic memo that came from the NLRA's general counsel. First, help our listeners understand what, if any, risk management concerns have prevented colleges from allowing graduate students and other student classifications. Most know the story of the birth of the term student athlete, but is there a bigger concern lurking in the shadows like changing of tax status or creating of layers upon layers of administrative burdens to document an athlete's workplace and hours? And either one of you can take it. Um, Adrian, maybe I'll start and then Perfect. you can fill in on the details. So. So I think, Karen, it's a, it's a really interesting question. And, and clearly, when we go back in history, and we look at some of the dynamics that are out there, particularly back to almost 2014 and 15 with the Northwestern case, a lot of these situations, a lot of these conversations occurred. You know, and at that point in time, I would tell you from a risk management standpoint, there wasn't a lot of people getting overly excited or concerned about it, right? It was almost like, yeah, this might happen. Yeah, but are, are we really need to dive into it? Do we really need to figure out what the ramifications would be like? So I guess if we told you in uh, late 2019 or early 2020, if we told you you really need to have a risk management around a pandemic shutting down your campus, you would probably told us, yeah, maybe I'm not too worried about it, right? Right. So I think I, I say all that because I, I really believe that it's all coming to a point where schools really need to um, pay attention to what's going on with some of these situations. So, um, you know, with the, the National Labor Relations Board opinion, when it came out, I think people started saying, wow, you know, what if this really does happen? And what does it uh, mean to my organization? What does it mean to how I, uh, you know, our infrastructure is set up? And, you know, we, we look at it, we, we say, this is just basic uh, risk management 101, right? Evaluate the situation, determine what the likelihood of the, uh, the risk would be, uh, weight that likelihood, 
look at the uh, infrastructure policies and procedures and governance that you have in place and determine if there's a gap between where you are now and where you want to be. And that's what we're advising our schools to look at when they look at this particular situation. So um, Adrian, maybe a little bit more detail on that. Yeah, what I think really is really actually pretty interesting in this is, you know, states enacted their own regulations. Many states enacted their own regulations in regards to NIL. And so now what we're seeing is in light of this new guidance about how um, the National Labor Act is going to be potentially applied, now we're seeing schools who really had to wrap their heads around the NIL to begin with. Now they're saying, well, what does this mean in light of our own state's regulations? Because depending on the state, some states explicitly say athletes are not employees of the institution. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this evolves, especially since there seems to be conflicting and competing guidance here, right? You have state regs, but you have potentially federal application of this uh, existing law. So um, yeah, Dave's absolutely right. You know, you take a look at your policies and your procedures and your processes and any technology tools, but then you throw in the, the wrench of, of conflicting guidance here. So be interesting to see how it plays out. And that assumes that they have written policies and procedures, but as you said, this has been a moving target for the last you know, nine months at least. And so if they don't have something in writing at this point, what kind of vulnerability does that leave for them? I think that's a really great question. Um, you know, Dave and I have been talking to schools across divisions um, and some of them are really well positioned. Um, they knew the regulation or the change in guidance uh, in terms of NIL was coming. Um, some of them helped draft the regulations or the executive orders for their state. So they were, they were not surprised. They were not caught off guard. They had policies ready to go July 1. We have a lot of colleagues uh, at smaller D1 schools, D2, D3, that are still trying to figure it out. What does this mean to us? Um, I, you know, I was on a call with some of my uh, internal audit colleagues at some D3 schools, and they said, oh, yeah, we heard about NIL, but you know that doesn't really apply to us. And we said, well, we're, we're watching the data come in, you know, in terms of who's participating at NIL, uh, excuse me, in NIL, and, and what are they reporting? And, and we're seeing a lot of activity at the D2 and D3 levels. So you need to be aware. And it, it caught one of our colleagues completely off guard, where she said, well, now I got to go talk to athletics. I got to see what we're doing. But it's definitely, you know, not a one size fits all. It's across the spectrum about where people are in terms of um, being prepared for, for implementing this. So, I mean, I think, Karen, with regards to the question of what the ramifications are, again, I'll, I'll, I'm mm -hmm. trying to keep it as simple as possible. Anytime that you're trying to put out fires versus you're being strategic and, and proactive in the way you're thinking, you're behind the gun. So, you know, that's the biggest concern that we have. You know, what, what happens to the already uh, constraints that we're seeing on our leadership teams, our administration teams, with regards to just keeping focus on the mission. You know, COVID has put us all in a very uh, interesting situation, uh, operationally challenged, financially challenged. And now we have all these uh, different external factors uh, pulling us in a lot of different directions. And, you know, we always try to get back to the core mission of most of our schools is really focusing on student success. And when you're pulled away from that to deal with all these other things, I mean, you're just not 
uh, able to put the type of energy behind being a successful organization. So college athletics plays a really important role with regards to many of our institutions. That's the reason they got involved with it to begin with. But when it starts becoming more of a burden and we can't focus on what we really want to do with regards to those programs, uh, we see things break down. And then what happens is you end up in the press, people lose their jobs, uh, it, it, nothing good happens from it when you're under this type of uh, constraints and pressures. I think, I think a lot of schools, you know, empathize with each other at this point because everybody's sort of flying by the seat of their pants because they're just trying to figure it out based on what their state law said, as you said, Adrian. But also when, when these memos drop out of, out of nowhere and it seems to, you know, craft a whole new relationship, there are a lot of people, including division one athletic directors and conference commissioners who've said they're not employees. They're going to be student athletes if they try to unionize. So we don't treat them as employees. But in listening to um, the NLRB general counsel in more detail on other communications, she's looking for plaintiffs. She is actively looking to advance and test this idea. So how would you advise an institution of a group of athletes to decide to take her up on this and work with advocates who want to advance this issue? And I'm already aware of law firms that are also looking for plaintiffs. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm maybe going to answer the question in a little bit different uh, direction with regards to how will we advise our clients with regards to getting in front of this situation. So I think we're going to end up in the same, the same position at the end of, end of the conversation. So I guess my, the first question is, you know, why, why you, th you ask yourself, why would our student athletes want to uh, reach out to the NLRB? What, what, why would they want to utilize? What would be the core problems that exist in our infrastructure, in our program, and the way we're coaching, mentoring, and handling our student athletes that would cause them this big concern? So I, that's my first question. I want to go out into my student population and ask them that question. So again, I mentioned the Northwestern case. When we go back to that situation, you know, they pointed to health reasons. They pointed to better protocols around concussion. Uh, they pointed to uh, future medical costs that the school, uh, the students may incur because of injured, injuries while they're in a college. Uh, and they also pointed to monetary reasons, right? So if I'm asking my student athletes that I'm getting in front of that and being proactive in the way I'm doing that, again, it all relates back to ultimately getting back to student success and why we have the programs to begin with. So the first question is, all right, how do I get in front of it? What are the core situations? What do I need to address it? How can I address it? How can I have a very transparent and open communication with my student athletes? And then the second one is, you know, who do I need in the room with regards to kind of helping me decide these, uh, where I need to be? You know, Adrian mentioned the NIL. Many of our schools formed very elaborate task force, legal counsel, uh, the academic side of the equation, the leadership, the, you know, um, compliance officers. All these people got in a room and they talked it through and they ended up kind of coming to the best solution. I think when it comes to situations like situations like this, you need representation from the student athletes in the room as well to help you figure that out. So being proactive. And then there's organizations out there um, that also address this with regards to their, their, how they're looking at this and how do we could pull in 
other thought leaders into the process as well. So again, step number one, be proactive, get in front of it. Why would they even go down this route? And you know, uh, make sure that we're addressing those core problems up front. Great, Adrian, what do you think? Yeah, I think everything Dave said is spot on. And just to reiterate, I mean, the coordination across the university is gonna be key. I mean, I think most institutions, you know, this is no surprise to you, Karen, operate in a decentralized fashion. Um, so, you know, oftentimes it can be a challenge to get the right people at the table to talk about this, but it's going to be really key. And I think, Dave, your comment about making sure we have students at the table, um, that's going to be essential, right? Because we need to have the understanding of like, what is the pulse of our students? And I think if we're talking regularly, you know, central administration with athletics administration, that's going to give us a real um, good clue into what our students are thinking what our athletes are thinking. So, you know, like Dave said, get the right people at the table, you know, compliance, counsel, you know, human resources in this case. We need to have understanding of what employment law is in, in kind of, you know, what that area of expertise is and, and just have a conversation. I think so many times we don't do that, right? And we kind of fall down. So that's going to be key. Everything that they've said plus, uh, plus the enhanced communication. Yeah, I think enhanced communication is really important. The schools that I worry about are the schools that you mentioned earlier, which are the less resourced, smaller schools that count on everybody wearing multiple hats, right? And they, the assumption is, you know what's going on in your program, you know what your athletes think. But one of the things I've learned in my research is that not a lot of schools effectively survey their athletes and give them an opportunity to anonymously provide feedback on their experience until they're out the door. So perhaps is there room in there for more engagement before it gets to the point where athletes are upset or poss possibly engaging outside legal counsel? What do you think? I think absolutely. I mean, our athletes are closest with their coaches, right? So they're talking many times a day, many times a week. I think there's an opportunity not only to, you know, survey the athletes, but the coaches. They're also... There often seems to be like a really big disconnect between athletics administration and coaches. Mm -hmm. So I think there's an opportunity to intersect more closely with the coaches in addition to the students. So you can do that in real time. I mean, I think that's our, um, that's our quickest avenue to the students. Although students these days are happy to tell you exactly what they're thinking <laughs> in any type of mechanism, you know, whether or not that's to you or it's you know, on a smart device on our social media site. But um, I think there's a lot of opportunities to, uh, engage our student athletes in many different ways. Dave, what do you think? Yeah, I, I would agree. I think the one thing that we've seen over the last six months in particular, um, particularly with regards to the, you know, the uh, NIL being passed is that coaches, athletes, ADs, everyone is seems to be much more engaged with understanding how they're working together for the common uh, good of the organization for the institution. Uh, we see schools putting in much more elaborate training, educational, financial literacy programs. We see schools engaging more with the broader population uh, on the administration side. What type of uh, what type of infrastructure do we already have in place for our existing student population, and how can we engage them more directly with our student athletes, whether it's our center of entrepreneurism or it's our marketing and social media department or communication department it seems like schools are really being more 
thoughtful with regards to holistically pulling together all those services. And I've been really encouraged with regards to what I'm hearing from our clients with the way they're thinking about this going forward. So we've been talking about NIL. Adrian, you were recently quoted in an Inside Higher Ed article about names, image, and likenesses. Walk us through some of the key points you referenced, particularly the unfunded mandates, which I find very interesting, that institutions face and the scrambling that compliance officers and others are experiencing trying to keep up with how to remain compliant with state law, if in fact there is one. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So, you know, as we were talking about before, the, the change in guidance or application about NIL from the NCA wasn't a surprise to many schools. You know, Dave and I have been talking with a lot of our colleagues, you know, both athletics and compliance across, across divisions and, and across the country. And, you know, by and large, everybody knew this was coming. Um, like I said, several states had regulations ready to go and or executive orders, you know, many schools in states were key uh, as part of that. It, they were at the table um, with their regulators to help draft that. You know, but what a lot of our colleagues that, you know, like I said, smaller D1, you know, D2, D3 schools weren't prepared for from a standpoint uh, was the implementation of NIL. So we've been talking a lot about resources and staffing. And you know, even before COVID, a lot of institutions operate in a lean staffing environment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they may have one general counsel, they may have one attorney, um, one compliance officer, if any, uh, you know, and one person in athletics is really responsible for doing everything. Um, so, you know, like Dave has talked about, while institutions really want their athletes to be successful, you know, broadly as students, uh, as athletes, um, if that's something that the student wants to do, especially with regards to NIL, because not everybody in our conversations um, with institutions across the country, not all students really want to be a part of this, which is which is a different um, topic altogether. But you know, if the students want to participate in NIL, these institutions want them to be successful. Um, but you know, they've got a lot going on in addition to all of the other compliance areas, all of the other NCA compliance. Um, now they've got to comply with NIL. They've got to figure out how, like we were talking to, put a policy in place, uh, you know, which needs to be compliant with your state regs and or with the NCAA guidance if there are no state regulations. Then like Dave was talking about, you got to make sure that that's communicated out and people are trained on that. Students, coaches, administrators, they need to know what their roles and responsibilities are in relation to NIL and what they need to do to report. And then somebody's got to monitor that. And, and broadly report that. That's in addition to their day jobs. They have all these other things that are going on. So, and that's just within athletics. You figure all of the other compliance areas that seem to grow, you know, daily here in higher education. That's just one other thing that they have to do. And so they're not getting additional people. Um, you know, the, the likelihood of that happening at many schools is pretty slim. So, you know, that's when we say unfunded mandate. It's just one other thing that they have to do in addition to everything else to support students. And, you know, they definitely want to support their students. You know, Dave and I, as we've had our conversations with, you know, administrators across, across divisions, they really want to be there for their students. They want them to be successful, but they're just struggling. Um, they're not sure how they're going to do it. I was uh, on a call with a smaller D1 school last week and with their athletics compliance officer, and they told me right now they're just saying no to NIL. They're just trying to figure out what it is um, 
what their policies are going to be, how they're going to educate their students, how they're going to review or you know be involved in the compliance and monitoring aspect, and they and they can't do it right now. So which which brings a whole different component, right? If they're saying no to NIL, so you know Dave and I are really watching what this is going to uh, mean for smaller, leaner schools. Um, you know what does this mean on recruitment and retention? Um, you know what are the potential impacts of NIL on mental health? And that's something completely different, um, you know, things related to equity, um, donor, and, donor and advancement relationships. That's going to be really interesting to see, um, you know, community relationships. Um, you know, I don't think it's any surprise that a lot of institutions across the country have enrollment issues. And so, you know, now schools are going to be faced uh, and competing against more well-resourced schools, like Dave was talking about, schools that have infrastructures and programs and marketing and, and the support to, you know, support NIL endeavors for students. And, and now these smaller, less resourced schools are going to be, you know, at, potentially at a loss. So it'll be interesting to see how um, NIL plays out. There's a lot of kind of unanticipated um, things that are kind of emerging as a result of of this, and, it, and it's a great opportunity. I think it's important to say that NIL is a great opportunity. It's just gonna present a lot of new considerations for leadership to, uh, to manage. I'm really glad that you added the enrollment piece to this too, because I do think it's a retention opportunity for schools. And if they don't handle it correctly, it could inadvertently redirect uh, athletes to other schools that seem to be handling it in a better way, giving them more opportunities or presenting them more options you know, have a, an entrepreneurship program already ready to go and your school's still struggling to put it together. So I see those as also risks that need to be mitigated as well. Dave, would you agree? Uh, absolutely, Karen. And I, I, so let's, let's turn this a, 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 into more of a positive conversation for our clients because while we, we have to give them the concerns that we see out there, they're always gonna come back and say, all right, well, Dave, what's my solution? Well, sometimes the solution is just already stepping back and, and focusing on how to be in front of this situation. So, for example, we talked to a D3 school that says, Dave, I can't handle all this NIL. There's just way too much. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to get my hands around it. I said, well, look at it a different way. Don't look at it as something you have to do. Look at it as an opportunity to really market yourself against your competitors with regards to how you're getting in front of it and, and being able to brand yourself in your recruiting uh, geography with your athletes and telling them, hey, you know, you're going to come here, you're going to get a great education, we have a great support system, and by the way, we're really enthusiastic about helping you understand how to best position yourself on a social media platform. We're really interested in giving you some really basic understanding of what it means to earn money under the NIL concept and how that relates to your, your, your funding at the institution. So all these things are probably basic things that you're already doing, but being able to package it a little bit and get in front of it really could put you in a position where you could enhance yourself. Now, we always go back and forth with the, with the question, where... Where's that blurred line between what you can and cannot do with regards to uh, the compliance rules and regulations, right? So 
you you need to be able to put yourself in a position where you can help your student athletes, but you can't be contracting for them. You can't be promoting them in a way that violates the compliance rules. So this really puts, I think, particularly our coaches in a very difficult situation where, you know, as Adrian mentioned, you know, as a student athlete, I have a high level of trust and respect, and I'm going to go to my coaches time and time again. Um, my wife and I have four children, and we have one right, one right now that's a, a, a first year, first semester uh, uh, running track at a D1 school. And we're going through all this with him. And we're like, hey, buddy, you need to talk to your coach. He's going to help guide you. She's going to help you figure all that out. And But yet he can't go to his coach and say, hey, coach, you know, I need some help with this NIL deal. I mean, should I do it or shouldn't I do it? And so these coaches are going to have to be able to really manage through that process in a way that they're doing what's right for the student athlete, but they don't have the compliance officer overlooking them, uh, you know, every time they say something. So, you know, that's where we talk about, you know, this concept of consistent communication, consistent education, and consistent transparency with regards to what we're doing, why we're doing it, and why we believe it's in benefit of not only the student athlete, and not just Karen, not just one student athlete, right? This is this is about a larger population. So you know, I think that the 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 fear that we're going to offend somebody and they're going to go file this suit or they're going to complain or go to the paper, we can't live our, or we can't operate that way. It has to be a process where everyone collectively leaves that room. When that task force makes a decision, they walk out of there. And they're all sync with regards to how they're going to communicate to the population. I was just going to say, speaking with one voice is really important for all the coaches, for not each coach to manage their own little empire and, and make their own little deals. Everybody has to be on the same page. Would you agree, Adrian? Yeah, absolutely. And I just, I want to reiterate something that Dave mentioned before, you know, one of the key ways we're seeing a lot of success at schools, especially ones that don't necessarily have the resources to go out and hire and implement, you know, full infrastructures is really around taking stock of what you already have in place. You know, for so many years, schools have been supporting student success through, you know, life skills training and teaching them how to navigate difficult situations and, you know, how to seek out help when they need it, you know, for all, for, all, for any number of reasons. So I think that there's a lot of infrastructure in place and we're seeing this with some really good success that schools can leverage to support their students and, and embed now, you know, things related to social media. We've already seen for a number of years, schools educating students on social media use, you know, more in relation to mental health and, and how to have, you know, control over that. But, you know, there's really an opportunity to now add just something else, another dynamic in there to how to use it to your benefit and how to, how to control that and take ownership of it. So I think that there's a really big opportunity for, you know, schools to inventory what they have in place, leverage all the stuff that they're really doing. That's, it's lots of good stuff. And, um, now kind of shift that and pivot that and, and help, you know, in terms of preventive controls and preventive risk management. Cause like Dave said, communication, education, are your best, uh, your best weapons here, your best tools rather. And also, you know, just helping the athlete understand that you're developing your personal brand, right? And, and it's who you want the world to see. And all of this has to reflect positively on you. There'll be some people who will come to you with ideas that you're like, no, nah, I'm not so sure I want to be associated with that. And others where you'll say, that's exactly who I'm aligned with and helping athletes see that. Right, and, and Karen, that's stuff that we teach our students anyway, right? Yes. Just as, as 
citizens. You know, you have a digital footprint. It will follow you into your next, you know, your after college life. So it's, it's again, you know, things that, you know, our faculty and administrators have already been teaching students. It's just an added, you know, dynamic here that we're now um, just building upon. So my last question is this, but I want to go to from the small school focus to the big, big, big school, which is the University of Texas. And they have done this amazing thing, which for decades would have been completely illegal. And the, everybody would have had a conniption about the fact that they have listed all of the teams and the athletes on their sport, athletics department website with their Twitter, Instagram, and email address so that any boosters can go directly to the athletes and sponsor their NIL. And Dave, should we have any worries about this, just eliminating all the barriers and boosters being able to go directly to the athletes that are currently on the University of Texas's rosters? Well, look, I, I, I'm pretty convinced that the University of Texas has a very uh, good uh, group of individuals that made that decision and landed it as the best course of action for them and their student athletes. So I, as I mentioned earlier, there are rules with regards to bright lines on what we can or cannot do with regards to helping a student athlete. So that that's the first one to make sure that you're not look. Someone's not just arbitrarily reading what the University of Texas did here and say, "Hey, that sounds good. I think I'll do it over here," without knowing how that could potentially affect their state rules, their regulations, and what's involved with their institution. So that's the first caution. Uh, the second one is. Uh, misinterpreting what we're really trying to solve here with regards to our connection with the boosters and the students and everyone understands that it's in line with NIL policies. There's not some side uh, conversation occurring or something going on that is not up on the board. I think so, you know, laying it out there, I, I got to believe there's a very elaborate infrastructure behind this. that really guides people through these courses of action. So, I think the caution is just don't read it and take it for what it is, because a lot of what we're hearing out there is that there's a lot of, of our student athletes being contacted by different promoters, agents, and so forth. And um, it, it gets a little rough out there with regards to who to, you can trust and who you can't trust, what these contracts look like, what you're really signing, and so forth. So. You know, when the institution's able maybe to harness a little bit and guide the parties in a better direction under the rules and regulations, I think you'll probably can end up at a better spot than just allowing a, a wild, wild west to occur out there and everyone's at, at you know, winging these contracts around. I, um, I get, it gets back to the com a comment I met, mentioned earlier about um, this, the coaches as well as being put in a position I'm not sure how the coaches see all this, right? How does that play into it as well? So I think that's a part of the conversation as well. You know, do the boosters now get to attend uh, the, the practices, right? Do they get to come on the field and talk to the athletes? You know, what happens at the press conference? Who's involved, who's not involved, you know? So I think there's just a lot of things that uh, probably need to be understood when we read this at its surface. Uh, when we first look at it, but they're occurring all over the place. And we're seeing these types of deals to collect the bargain deals all over. Um, there are situations that exist to get a little bit within the nuances of the regulations. For example, um, international students uh, have certain different rules with regards to 
their visas and what they could do or can't do with regards to earning money. So if you have a, if you're going to give a certain blanket uh, contract to your football players and everyone's involved and you have some international students on the team, you got to weed through all that. So it gets, it, it, it gets, a, it could get a little bit dicey when you get into the details. Yes. It's a great point. It's a great point. Adrian, to kind of wrap us up here, any tips or tricks that you've learned over the last uh, few months that you'd like to offer to the audience? I think it just goes back to making sure you have the right people in the room when you're figuring out how we're going to oper operationalize compliance. You know, going back to the Texas case, and we put on our enterprise risk management hat. Dave made a great, you know, illustration there with the international students. Did we have somebody from global affairs? You probably never would have thought that you needed to have somebody from, you know, international affairs, global affairs at the table. Um, what about donor and advancement relations? You know, if our boosters and our donors are allowed to go directly to our students uh, broadly, um, does that mean they're going to potentially divert funds from the institution? And, and what impact could that have? So, I think we just need to, you know, continue to think at an enterprise, you know, level and make sure we're getting everybody um, that could potentially be impacted. And we got to really think, you know, what are all the areas that could potentially be impacted in just in addition to our student athletes and our coaches and you know, athletics administration, get the right people in the room, right seats in the bus, and then, you know, that'll help drive uh, your policy, your process in, in the right direction. Yeah, we didn't really mention financial aid. It's the jury's still out about whether this will impact financial aid for, for athletes as well. Yeah, that's a fantastic uh, question because, you know, back to, you know, our student athletes employees, well, there are different rules around, um, you know, employee benefits around tuition and whether or not that's taxable. And then there's, you know, potential um, legislation that's been proposed about taxing scholarships. And then you go back to the state rates, right? Which... Every state has a different take on, on whether or not um, scholarships can, can be touched uh, by this. So yeah, just get the right people in the room. Our, we're very lucky at our institutions that we work with. We've got a lot of smart people. Yeah. So you know, got to bring them all together. And we've seen a lot of success uh, when, that's, when that's done. That's great. Well, uh, Dave and Adrian, you've given us an awful lot to think about today. And uh, I'm so glad we had this conversation. Um, Definitely for our listeners, uh, keep an eye on this space because it keeps, keeps changing quickly and dramatically. And if the NCAA and their constitutional com uh, convention ends up deciding to separate out the divisions or make some major change, that could impact all of this as well. And of course, we'll know more about that over the next few months. Thank you both so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Karen, it was a pleasure. So, so